Join Douglas Wilson, Dr. Joseph Boot, Brian Sauvey, Eric Kahn, and myself on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd for our 2024 conference. It's called Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Our early bird pricing ends on Thursday, August 31st. So go and visit rightresponseconference.com to register today. We hope to see you at the conference in March. All right, welcome to another Monday Live with yours truly, Pastor Joel Webin. I'm the host of Right Response Ministries. We do this every Monday at 2 p.m. Central Time, and then our flagship shows every Tuesday, also at 2 p.m. Central Time. That's called Theology Applied, where I have notable guests. It's an interview show. I have guys like Doug Wilson or guys like Aaron Wren, guys like Michael Foster, and we talk about important topics and doctrines uh, that serve uh, your everyday Christians in the church today, uh, all of Christ for all of life, applying theology, not just to the home and to the church, but to uh, politics, to culture, to markets, to economies and vocation and school and education, the whole nine yards. So uh, today is our live with Pastor Joel, and I'm going to be dealing with uh, a text to address our topic at hand, which deals with, uh, is the earth round or is it flat? Um, I've got a few guys even in my church who would prescribe to a flat earth theory. They're solid men who love the Lord. I know that that might sound funny to uh, a few of us today. We think that we're very sophisticated and that we're the most intelligent people to ever live. Um, but all that being said, I'll get into it. I personally don't prescribe to flat earth, but I think that there are some legitimate things that should be discussed from a biblical worldview. Uh, real quick before I hop into the topic, let me mention our conference. We have our early bird rate. It's ending October, uh, August 31st. So this is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got uh, Pastor Douglas Wilson from Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's going to be with us. We've got Brian Sauvey, Pastor Brian Sauvey uh, from Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. Also Pastor Eric Kahn. He's also there with Brian Sauvey, same church in Ogden, Utah. And we've got Dr. Joseph Boot. He's going to be joining us from the Ezra Institute, and I'll be there as well. We're going to have uh, some live panels. We're going to do a live Theology Applied uh, podcast show, 90 minutes long, on the topic of biblical patriarchy with myself, uh, Eric Kahn, and Doug Wilson. Then we're also going to be doing uh, kind of like a live Haunted Cosmos theme conversation for an hour and a half with Brian Sauvey and myself, and also with Ben Garrett. Uh, he's a deacon at Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. He's going to come for this event as well. Uh, A.D. Robles has just informed me that he'll be there. Um, so there's a lot of guys who are coming out. I think William Wolf is going to try to make it. John Harris is going to try to make it. So if you'd like to meet some of your favorite Christian podcasters and, uh, and be with us for uh, an incredible event, then make sure that you go and register at rightresponseconference.com. Not Right Response Ministries, but go to rightresponseconference.com. Again, the early bird rate is ending uh, on the last day of this month. So that's August 31st at 11.59 p.m. It's done. So August 31st, that is your very last opportunity uh, to register for this conference. And that, I think that's like two weeks away. Nathan, is that right? I think 10 days away. What uh, August 31st, what date is that? Is that a Thursday? Probably a, a Thursday or a Friday, maybe? It's a Thursday, okay? So not this Thursday, but next Thursday, a week and a half. So it's not very long. You got a week and a half next Thursday, not this Thursday, but next Thursday, August 31st, 11.59 p.m. End of the day, that's that's it. The early bird is going to away. So go ahead and go to rightresponseconference.com to register as soon as 
possible for blueprints for Christendom 2.0. All right, let's go ahead and hop into our text. So the text that I want us to look at is Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 through 25. Uh, If you're not familiar with this passage, this is, you're probably familiar with at least the narrative, the events that take place in this passage. This is where uh, Joshua petitions the Lord to uh, lengthen the literal time of the day, that the day would pause and that it would extend longer than a normal 24-hour period day. Um, to speak quite literally, uh, as the text does, we'll get into it here in just a moment, Joshua calls for the sun and the moon to stand still in the sky. And the Lord makes this actually happen. This is a supernatural miracle. This is not a metaphor. It's something that literally happens. Uh, There has been no day before or no day since like it, so says the text. So this is Joshua chapter 10. We'll focus our attention on verses 8 through 15. It says this, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Let's pause there, leave it up on the screen. There's three things that the Lord does supernaturally in this passage that we're reading right now in order for Israel to be victorious in this battle. The particular battle at hand, uh, Israel has now had... Uh, This is their third battle since crossing the Jordan River into the promised land of Canaan. So uh, Moses had died. Joshua is the successor. He replaces Moses and he leads Israel over the Jordan River. Supernaturally, the water heaps up in a pile because the the Levitical priest, uh, they go into the water first and the water stops as they're carrying the ark. And they stay right there in the middle of the river and it dries up and the water heaps up in a pile. All of Israel crosses over and the priests come up last. Um, Since crossing the Jordan River, there's been now, this is the third battle. There's been two significant battles before this. The first battle that Israel engages in after crossing the Jordan River into the land of promise is the battle at Jericho. And this is a battle that Israel wins, again, supernaturally. That's the common theme, is that Israel emerges victorious in all of these battles because the battle is the Lord's, because God is a mighty fortress. God is a strong tower, because the Lord of hosts is with them, with Israel. Israel does not do this in their own strength or their own numbers or their own expertise. It's always God giving them the victory. So in the first battle, the case of Jericho, They march around. You're probably familiar with the story. Uh, They march around the city once for six days. And then on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. After having completed the seventh time, then they give a great shout to the Lord. They blow on the trumpets and shofars. And and all of a sudden, the walls, they don't just crack and crumble. but, But what happens, according to the text, is that the earth swallows them up. That God actually opens up the ground, the mouth of the earth, and it swallows up these outer walls of Jericho, except uh, for the house of Rahab, which we know was in the wall. It could have been adjacent to the wall, but the text says uh, that her house was in the outer wall, so much so that she could hang a scarlet thread out of the window and it could be seen from outside the city. So her house remains intact. That section of the wall, we're meant to assume, doesn't crumble, but the earth opens up and swallows the rest of the walls and then uh, Israel runs them down. They go into Jericho and they destroy uh, the city. Now, the second battle is with Ai. Ai was a much smaller tribe and they didn't have, uh, at least they probably had defensive walls, but not to the same stature as Jericho. In the case of Ai, 
what, what takes place is that uh, because they're a smaller tribe, the Bible says about 12,000 in total number. So that would be the fighting men, including the elderly, the women, and the children. And so Joshua sends up about 3,000 or a little bit more of his fighting men to take on the city, and they get decimated um, by God's providence and his mercy. Not many of the Israelite uh, fighting men die, but they quickly have to, uh, to tuck tail and run away. They have to retreat. And then Joshua knows that their defeat um, is supernatural as their victory was over Jericho. Their defeat from Ai is also supernatural. J Joshua instinctually knows, and he's right about this, uh, that there is sin in the camp, and he falls on his face before the Lord. Uh, he's praying, and, and the Lord says, stop weeping. Um, you, you, you've been grieved into repentance. That's great, but that's as far as the grief needs to go. The grief has a purpose. God never gives us grief for the sake of grieving. It's not, grief is not an end in itself. We don't just grieve to grieve, uh, but God grieves Joshua into action, into repentance, changing course, and, and God reveals to him there's sin in the camp. They find out that Achan and his household had taken some of the devoted things from the previous battle in Jericho that were supposed to be devoted to destruction, or that if they were articles of gold and things that were used in pagan worship in Jericho, they were supposed to be devoted to the treasury of the Lord. Achan had hidden these things in the earth, under, under the ground, under his tent, and he and his household is put to death. Um, I am of the persuasion that he did not have young children or infants, uh, but that he had grown children and that they were actually um, uh, uh, they were uh, complicit in that they actually joined their father in this sin, um, that it wasn't just the children being put to death for the sin of the father, because the Bible, uh, God says that that's something that should not take place. Um, and so I, I believe that the children were actually involved in the sin. They committed the sin alongside with their father, his wife, and his grown children. So he's put to death. Then they go back up against Ai. And in this instance, now Joshua is taking like 30,000, so 10 times the amount of men. But they don't just win because of the men. There's still a supernatural element even in this battle. Now you're talking about Ai having 12,000 people total, again, including the women and children. Now 30,000 of the Israelites are going against them. But even in this instance, there's a reliance on the supernatural power of the Lord. The Lord is the one who grants the victory. Joshua, in this instance, he holds out, stretches out his javelin. And I think implicitly in the text, we're meant to assume that he's doing something not, not of his own accord, but something that God instructed him to do. He points his javelin towards the city of Ai, and he holds it out until Ai is completely decimated and defeated. And as he's stretching out his javelin, uh, God is granting supernatural strength and victory to Israel. It's kind of uh, reminiscent of what happens in a battle with Moses, where Moses is holding up both of his hands, and as he holds up his hands outstretched, uh, Israel is granted victory. And if he starts to droop his hands, they start to lose. He holds them up again. He's getting tired. And so two men on either side are holding up his arms for him because as his arms are outstretched, there's something supernatural going on where God is actually, um, he's aiding and, and giving strength and, and ability and skill uh, to Israel to overcome um, that particular battle. So the same kind of thing is happening with AI. So, so Jericho's supernatural, the walls uh, sink into the earth, right? That's supernatural. The walls crumble, the earth swallows them up. AI, the javelin outstretched, God gives strength to Israel. Now the third battle, this is uh, unique in the sense that this is the biggest battle that Israel has faced thus far on this side of the Jordan River as they're driving out all the pagan peoples in the land of Canaan. This is uh, the, the most difficult battle because it's uh, not just up against one tribe, 
Uh, but you have five Amorite tribes that unite together, and they're actually not going after Israel directly, but after Gibeon. Gibeon was another Amorite tribe that made peace with Israel, and they did it under pretense. They lied and said, oh, we're from a far distant land, and we've, we've just heard of the power of Yahweh and what he did to the Egyptians and what he did here and what he did there. And so we wanted to enter into a covenant uh, with Israel so that we would be at peace with you so that you would not destroy us. Now they lied to Joshua and the chiefs of Israel uh, because if Joshua and the leaders of Israel knew that Gibeon was a neighboring tribe actually in the land of Canaan, then they would have known that, that Gibeon is one of the, the, the very tribes that God commissioned them to, uh, to remove from the land. Um, and so uh, they would not have entered into a covenant. But again, this was under pretense, under deception. And it's also Israel's fault, particularly uh, Joshua's fault, because he did not consult the Lord, is what the text says. He didn't consult the Lord, uh, so they made a vow, a covenant, rashly. Um, then they realized that, okay, well, this is actually a neighboring tribe. We shouldn't have done this. However, we've already made a covenant, and two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, even though we should not have entered into covenant with a, tr a neighboring tribe that lives in this land that God is giving to us as an inheritance, um, it would be even worse... Uh, for us to break a covenant that we've made before the Lord uh, than, to, than to let this tribe live. And so they let Gibeon live, and, and it seems as though from the text, it's only a few days later, right? So it's not like years and years have passed. Uh, but pretty quickly after this covenant is made, and Israel is now aware that they were lied to, but choose to honor the covenant anyways, now five other Amorite kings uh, form an alliance to go and get Gibeon, because Gibeon uh, made a treaty with Israel. And so they're like, Gibeon's a traitor. They sold out. We're going to take out Gibeon. Now, Joshua and Israel, they're saying, we're not going to kill you, Gibeon. We made a covenant. It's one thing to say, we won't kill you. It's another, though, to say, we will actually come to your defense and protect you from other guys who are trying to kill you. And yet that's precisely what Joshua and Israel does. Uh, Gibeon sends word and says, five different Amorite tribes have, have formed an alliance and are coming to destroy us quickly, please come to the aid of your servants. We're in a covenant with you. And Joshua honors the covenant, not, not merely to the degree of not inflicting destruction upon Gibeon, but actually coming to protect Gibeon from others that would seek to destroy them, which is a remarkable thing. But uh, from what we can tell, it seems like that was the right decision and that the Lord honored it. So now you have Israel going to the aid of Gibeon, um, up against not just Jericho, one tribe, or, or Ai, one tribe, but five different united Amorite tribes. And so, again, there's this supernatural element. With Jericho, the walls are swallowed up into the earth. With uh, Ai, the javelin is outstretched. And now we're going to see three different supernatural signs, one of them, the third being the sun and the moon standing still in the sky. Uh, but three different supernatural elements that God gives to Israel so that they might overcome these five united Amorite tribes. All right, back to the text. So here we go. So verse eight again, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. That's the five different tribes that are united against Gibeon and Israel is coming to Gibeon's aid. Verse nine, so Joshua came upon them suddenly having marched up all night from Gilgal and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. That's number one. So the first, and this is supernatural, the first thing that God does, and we see this multiple times throughout the scripture, um, but the first thing that God does supernaturally, this is not just the, the normal nervous jitters that someone might have as they're about to go into war because anyone who goes into war is going at the risk of losing their own life. No, this is a supernatural 
uh, sense of dread, a spirit of fear and panic uh, for the enemies of Israel. The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them. So now Israel is fighting their enemies, but their enemies are supernaturally afraid. And so it gives Israel the upper hand. They strike them with a great blow at Gibeon and chase them by the way of the ascent to Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Let's go ahead. Verse 11 now. Now, so picture this. Let's pause for a second. Go ahead and leave the text up on the screen. Uh, but what you have going on is five Amorite tribes united going against Gibeon. Israel's coming to Gibeon's aid. And God, boom, he strikes these five Amorite tribes, every single one of the men with a supernatural terror and dread right before Israel falls upon them so that Israel now is calm and collected and confident and their opponents are in fear and panic. And so Israel immediately already has the, the advantage and is beginning to slaughter the enemy. But now what we're, what we're supposed to be sensing at this point of the text is that Israel is winning the battle and they're winning it handedly, um, but that many of these Amorite tribes, their, their fighting men are now retreating, going back to their fortified cities. And so here comes in the Lord with the second supernatural element. The first is to throw them into a panic so that Israel is killing them. But now um, all the ones that, that Israel is not killing, they're running away, but God wants to be thorough here. Remember that some of these tribes have talked about it before, but uh, we know that the Nephilim were among them, that, that these aren't just uh, evil people. That would be bad enough in itself. Pagan, idolatry, human sacrifice, the whole nine yards. God is judging them through Israel, using Israel as his instrument of judgment. It's not just about giving Israel the land. It's also about removing these pagan tribes who for 400 years, what God said to Abraham previously for 400 years, were filling up the full measure of their iniquity so that God's just judgment uh, would be justified. And so uh, these are bad people, but not just bad people. The Nephilim are among them, or descendants of the Nephilim, men of renown, giants. Uh, so we have people who uh, some of them, at least, maybe not all, but some of them are descendants of these uh, of these fallen angel human hybrids where, where the sons of God, fallen angels, watchers, uh, they, they were thrown down from heaven, inhabited the earth, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took them as wives and created this hybrid offspring that's not even entirely human. And then down the line from the Nephilim, first generation of these hybrid fallen angel watcher, you know, half human daughter of men, uh, from their descendants, you get that's where you get the Rephaim and different, you know, Nephilim or Nephilim tribes. Um, that uh, some of them uh, were giants, and then there was a lot of intermarriage with them because they wanted to keep their bloodline pure. This this fallen angel bloodline, and so you get giants, but you also get deformities, right? Uh, you you may have heard of uh, you know with with Goliath and his brothers, the son of uh, sons of uh, Anak, that they had six fingers and six toes. Um, there's even stories, and I, I can't collaborate this, but of Native Americans that um, that they originated waving as a gesture as you're coming close to someone, waving to say hello, uh, that, that maybe part of that might have been um, in order to show that you had five fingers and not, and not more, because there are rumors that some of the Nephilim offspring, that when they were uh, expelled out of the land of Canaan under Joshua, um, you know, Moses uh, in the wilderness and then Joshua in the land of Canaan, and then further expelled with Israel, especially underneath David and his kingship, uh, killing some of the, the last remnants like Goliath and his brothers. There were still giants, Nephilim uh, descendants. 
Um, and, but some have said that, that some of them were able to get to uh, the Americas uh, somehow. We, we don't know if maybe there was uh, actually a, a land passage at that time. We know that the world has changed drastically um, since, uh, certainly since the days of Noah before the flood, but even after the flood. And so there are some uh, reports and testimonies of people finding uh, giant bones uh, in places like Kentucky or places like even Texas, um, places in the United States. And these giants were smaller, you know, maybe eight, nine, 10 feet in some cases. There are some reports of larger giants. So you, you see that bloodline already being diluted. But all that being said, my point is that the, the, the Canaanite tribes that Israel is facing, they're not just bad people. And, and hear me, if they were only merely bad pagan people who filled up the fullness of their iniquity over 400 years of human sacrifice and worshiping idols, that would be plenty sufficient for God to use Israel as his instrument to judge every single one of them. In addition, though, that would be enough. But in addition, um, you have bad people and then you have bad kind of people. Um, that meaning they're not entirely human, that they have some sense of this fallen angel watcher blood in their DNA. They are, are wicked, heinous, um, giant people that, uh, that are out for blood, that are violent. And so this is what's happening. And, and God's supernatural power is necessary in order for Israel to win. So in the first instance, uh, God throws them into his, the enemies of Israel into a supernatural panic. Israel gets the upper hand, but now some of them are running away. If they can successfully retreat all the way back to their fortified cities, then they can regroup and they would be very difficult uh, to, for Israel to siege. Um, or uh, they could mount a counterattack, you know, in the coming months or coming years. Uh, but again, it's the name of the game is thoroughness. And it, this is God judging these pagan tribes, tribes for their evil uh, malice and idolatry. And it's also God wiping out these, uh, these perverse, corrupt bloodlines of people that descended from fallen angels, uh, marrying the daughters of men. There's all of these different supernatural elements going on. So it's not enough for God just to give Israel the victory by throwing the, uh, their, their opponents into a panic so that Israel can win uh, in the moment. No, God wants every single one of these uh, Amorite tribes, these fighting men from the Amorites, the, the, the wicked pagans, to be taken out. So it's not just Israel uh, being given the power by God supernaturally to win the battle while some of them get away. God wants to follow through. He wants all of them to be put to death. So now we're ready for verse 11. As they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent to Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were actually, there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed by the sword, with the sword. So God actually supernaturally kills more of these Amorite soldiers by the hailstones, the ones that are running away from Israel, than Israel even killed by the sword, which just goes to support my previous point. If it was only Israel and the sword, uh, then more of them actually would have gotten away than Israel put to death. And there would be a future battle that Israel would have to have uh, later on because they would have killed the minority of the fighting men, the majority having gotten away to their fortified cities, regrouping and being able to mount a counterattack later on. But God is getting it done. He's getting it done thoroughly because these are wicked, idolatrous, pagan people and at least with some of them, the Nephilim being among them is what Numbers uh, says. These are not just pagan people, but these are 
hybrid, demonic, fallen angel people, or at least the descendants of them. Um, So God begins to wipe out those who are running with hailstones, and those who uh, didn't run, Israel is uh, wiping out with the sword, and the reason why Israel has the upper hand is because of the first instance of supernatural power from the Lord, he throws them into a panic. So the first thing, God throws them into a panic. The second thing, he rains down hailstones um, and kills more than Israel can even kill with a sword. Now the third and final supernatural element of this battle, verse 12, it says, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun stands still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. Let's go ahead and continue. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. So again, think, think of this. Here's the theme. It's the thoroughness. It's not just Israel needs to win. Right? The goal is not just winning the battle. The goal is wiping out and destroying entirely these pagan, wicked people because God is just and Israel is his designated instrument in this moment uh, to bring his just judgment on people who for centuries have been doing wicked, heinous, idolatrous things. So God gives Israel the upper hand by throwing them into a panic. That would be enough for Israel to win the battle but not necessarily enough to thoroughly wipe them all out. So God makes sure that the ones who are running away, they get crushed by giant hailstones being thrown down from the heavens. And God supernaturally lengthens the day, the hours of the day literally lengthen so that Israel can do more uh, warfare, more killing with a sword, and God can kill more with hailstones. That's the theme that we're seeing go on. It's not just that God is... Uh, that God is committed to ensuring that Israel is protected, that the, the Israelites don't die themselves and that they win the battle. No, God is ensuring that, that um, not just that Israel wins and that Israel is sustained and protected, but that all these Amorite tribes are dead, every single one of them. And how does he do that? Well, the ones that Israel miss, the ones that are running away, hailstones. And not only that, he lengthens the day, literally grants the request of Joshua to cause the sun and the moon to stand still so that the day is lengthened. All right, the the text continues. It says, is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or after or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel, so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Again, that was Joshua chapter 10, verse 8 through 15. Here's the final thing that I want us to see, and we're going to talk about this flat earth theory. The final thing that I want us to see is this. The Bible says in Joshua 10, verse 14, there has never been a day like it before or since, meaning after this day, When the sun and the moon stood still in the sky and the day was literally lengthened in its time and hours, there has never been a day since then that has been longer than 24 hours. And likewise, verse 14 says, there has been no day like it before or since. So not has has there only not been a day longer than 24 hours since this day, but the text says also before this day which means this and plenty of other biblical texts, but it's worth mentioning here that that the six days that God created the heavens and earth were days. They were not thousand year long days. There has never been a day before or after this 
The, the, the sun and the moon stayed still in the sky and the, the, the literal hours of the day were um, elongated and lengthened. Every day since this day has been 24 hours, a normal day. And according to verse 14, every day before this day, which would include the first six days of, 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 of worldly history of the earth's existence, those first six days where God created the heavens and the earth were literal 24-hour days. Every day before this day with Joshua and every day after has been a day. Now, how did God do this? I mean, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But I will admit that from a flat earth perspective, the idea of the sun and the moon standing still in the sky, that's really easy for for most of church history until fairly recently, the last few centuries, for them to answer that question. If anybody said, you know, well, how did God supernaturally cause, you know, the, the day uh, to, to be lengthened and the sun to stop and the moon to stop in the sky? Well, uh, he just caused the sun and the moon to stop. But for, from our perspective, with the earth being a sphere and rotating on its axis, we know that, that in order for this to be accomplished um, in a physical sense, it wouldn't be that the sun and the moon stopped, or certainly not the sun, but if the earth is rotating around the sun and it's also rotating on its own axis, for the sun to stand still is not for God to cause the sun to stop, but to cause the earth in its rotation to stop. And if God caused the earth in its rotation to stop, to stop spinning, wouldn't that upset the, the entire environment of the earth? Wouldn't we fly off the surface of the earth? Wouldn't that uh, kill all of creation? Right? But again, for a flat earther, you know, they say, well, you know how God did this, Joel? Um, the earth is flat. It's not revolving around the sun. Um, the sun and the moon, God just caused them to stop in the sky. Pretty easy answer. Just saying. Now, I'll get a little bit more into this whole flat earth thing. Again, it's not my pers- uh, uh, purview. It's not, it's not the position that I hold. Um, but I, I want to say something that, that I think is important for us to understand uh, for those who do hold to this view, because a lot of times people give them, you know, they give them grief. And I, I think that that's wrong. So we're, we're going to deal with that when we come back. But real quick, we have a, a couple words from our sponsors. Finally, a coffee company that doesn't hate you and your beliefs. Today's sponsor, Squirrely Joe's Coffee, is a thoroughly Christian company that ships seriously good coffee straight to your front door. Owned and operated by Joe Morris and his family out of Olney, Illinois. Joe also serves as a pastor of a small Reformed church. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. They also donate a portion of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad to help end child trafficking. Just go to squirrelyjoes.com and use promo code RRM for 20% off your purchase. Squirrely Joe's Coffee, share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Our sponsors, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risk. To join this growing community that is already building wealth unto future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact 
private family banking partner, Chuck Delaterante, at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. That's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Set up an appointment and receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown. Go to the links in the show notes below. Are you looking for a Christian-owned and operated cattle company that delivers high-quality beef to your doorstep? If so, you'll love Mercy Meadows Ranch. Our friends at Mercy Meadows share our values and vision, making the Dominion Mandate a reality. They raise top-quality beef without any vaccines, hormones, or antibiotics. To celebrate their fall bulk beef launch, they're giving away a free 10-pound box of ground beef to one of our listeners. You could be the winner of this amazing grass-fed, grain-finished beef. Are you looking for beef to fill the freezer? Then check out their delicious steaks, roasts, fajitas, and ground beef shipped free directly to your door. Don't miss this chance to enter this incredible giveaway. Just click the link in the description below to enter the giveaway. Mercy Meadows Ranch is the best choice for Christian families who want to eat healthy and support Christians serving Christians. So the last thing I want to say is this. Theistic evolution. I believe that theistic evolution is a heresy. I do. Uh, the reason why is because it doesn't just tamper with our idea of creation, the way that God made the heavens and the earth, uh, but it actually disrupts and dismantles uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear in Romans chapter 5 uh, that sin entered the world by one man and through sin, death. And so too by one man, namely the second and final Ab Adam, Jesus Christ, by his obedience comes life. But theistic evolution teaches that, that death did not come into the world through sin, uh, the sin of man, but death actually came into the world by God's order and design before sin, or even man, the creation of man for, for that instance, uh, before any of that even came about. See, evolution essentially teaches this. It teaches many things, but in a nutshell, what we should understand from a biblical worldview is this. Uh, that you have Adam and Eve, happy and healthy, uh, but they're standing on top of a pile of billions and billions of skulls. That's the whole idea of evolution. The idea of evolution is that anything that is made, anything that comes about, comes about as the product of a bunch of other things before that thing dying, living, dying, living, dying. Out of the primordial soup come these little fish slash tadpoles slash, you know, frogs that turn into lizards, that turn into uh, squirrels, that turn into this, that turn into that, you know, all the way down. And they die and they die and they die. And it's not just a, a pair of them. It's, it's, it's millions and millions and millions. It's all these different species, but millions of each of those species leading up to Homo erectus and all these pre-man biped you know, pseudo-type, you know, human beings that eventually lend towards uh, Homo sapiens, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are, are there in the garden, and they're smiling, and they're happy, and God's walking with them in the cool of the day, but underneath their feet, buried uh, just a little bit under the ground, is a mountain of skulls. Death, the Bible teaches, 
death is the result of sin. Death is the result of sin. Um, and that's why Jesus, through his obedience, by his perfect righteousness and obedience, he is the only one who can grant to us, by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, eternal life. Jesus is the one who conquers death. The last Adam, he conquers death. And the first Adam introduces death by his sin. God is not the author or the originator of death. Now, here's my point. My point is that I would much rather you believe that the world is flat and look at a text like Joshua chapter 10, verses 8 through 15, and say, oh, I know how God did this. The sun goes around the world and the moon goes around the world. And the world itself is like a basin, like a bowl, concave. God's holding it up. And there are waters under the earth and a canopy of water above the earth. And the earth is sitting there flat in the center of the universe. God's masterpiece, his magnum opus, and everything else is revolving around that. And on this particular day in Joshua chapter 10, verses you know, 8 through 15, God calls these uh, these things that are, are in the heavens, these stars, these planets that are, are orbiting the earth and, and going around the earth, he calls them to stop in the sky. If you believe that, um, then I'll see you in heaven. If you believe that, plus you also believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and your faith is in him, then I will see you in heaven, along with uh, pretty much every other Christian until, again, a few hundred years ago. You can believe that and be a faithful Christian. I'll tell you what you can't believe. You can't believe evolution. And yet, you know, we'll mock somebody who thinks that the earth is flat, but we get real sophisticated, real intellectual, and, you know, carve out safe spaces, the, these spiritual doctrinal safe spaces uh, to make room for pagans who who hate the word of God, who who believe that that it wasn't six literal days. They don't believe in a young earth. They believe that the earth is billions of years old, or at least millions of years old. And and that God, you know, if if there is a God, he made everything not by his power and not as the author of life, but he made it through his chief scalpel, his chief instrument in creating anything, which is death. Um, if you believe that, if you believe that death uh, was originated and authored by God and that, that millions, if not billions of species, including very human-like species, missing link type species, um, were all put to death by God in his plan to eventually bring about homo sapiens, human beings, as we know them today. Um, if that is your view, uh, you cannot hold that, uh, and, and reconcile it with, with texts like Romans 5 um, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, uh, if you believe the world is flat and that the sun is rotating around the world and that God on this particular day with Joshua caused the sun and the moon to stand still in the sky, uh, great. If you're looking for a church with a pastor who's going to welcome you and say, hey, I'm glad you're here, brother, and I'm glad that you love the word of God, then come check out my Covenant Bible Church where I pastor in Central Texas, Georgetown, Texas. You'll feel right at home. Um, but if you're going to be sophisticated um, and you, you're going to, you know, you, you're going to be too smart for the Word of God, that my point is that is a much bigger problem.
That's a much bigger problem. You can defend a flat earth from scripture. I think personally, you can also defend the world as many people, modern people know it today. I personally believe that the earth is a sphere. I believe that it's rotating. And my answer, well, then how did God make this happen? Well, my answer, how did God make anything happen? I, he's God. I know that may not be an answer that satisfies you, but that's, that's the, you know, that's the kindergarten answer in your Sunday school class. You know, what's the answer to this question? Jesus, right? Jesus is always the answer. That's, that's my answer. My answer is that if God could, uh, <laughs> The, the, if God could create everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, then I, then I think he could cause the, the earth to stop rotating in such a way that the day was lengthened while, while at the same time simultaneously making sure that every, every person and animal didn't fly off the face of the earth. So that I, I hold to uh, that the earth is a sphere that is rotating on its axis. I believe that those things are true. I certainly don't believe everything that our modern, you know, day scientists would posit, um, but I do believe that. But if you don't believe that and you think the earth is flat, well, then again, you're in good company. Plenty of Christians have believed that, and that doesn't contradict the scripture. It does not contradict the gospel. What you can't believe is uh, the hogwash uh, that scientists, modern day God-hating scientists, scripture-hating scientists, try to shove down our throats uh, today, and not just our throats, but the throats of children in public schools, state-run, uh, God-hating public schools. And and to be completely honest, again, um, I guess I'm just, you know, this is the episode where I stand up for flat earthers, but um, flat earth makes way more sense, way more sense than people coming from fish. So if we're going to poke fun at someone for being stupid, find somebody who believes in evolution, right? I mean, that's what April 1st is all about, April Fool's Day. The Proverbs say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? Who says there is no God? An atheist. So April 1st, April Fool's Day, that's uh, National Atheist Day. All right. Thanks for tuning in.